Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And around this time last year, um, Katie and I did an episode on the artist Michelangelo. And it's a given that Michelangelo, he's one of the most famous artists in history. But... According to the art historian Peter Sohm, Michelangelo has been surpassed in at least one head-to-head competition. Uh, and again, at least in terms of what's being written about him. Nobody's looking at the art show attendance or something here. But that raises the question, who is the upstart? Interestingly, it's another Michelangelo, except this one is named Michelangelo Marisi, and he's better known as Caravaggio. And Soam, who works at the University of Toronto, he has studied books, catalogs, and scholarly papers about the two men published in the last 50 years, everything kind of in that time range. And over time, the Caravaggio-related work did, in fact, outpace the writings on Michelangelo, especially since the mid-1980s or so. Yeah, so uh, Caravaggio is apparently quite popular right now. And um, if the obsession has been growing for the past 50 years, it's really reached new heights this year and last year, which was the 400th anniversary of the artist's death. But so far, we've had two art world controversies. This is in the past year. Two art world controversies, uh, which have played out in really dramatic headline fashion. We're going to just read off a few of these headline, counter-headlined selections for you. One is from the BBC. Vatican reveals Caravaggio painting found in Rome. And then later, Vatican paper dismisses own Caravaggio claims. It's a little embarrassing. We have another one from the BBC. Church bones, quote, belong to Caravaggio, researchers say. But also, unearthing doubts about Caravaggio's remains. Yeah, we're going to be talking about that one a little bit more because obviously it's an exhumation of course. related point. We're going to cover that. that. Um, there have also been two big exhibits, though, on the artists in the past year and, and this year as well. One was of Caravaggio's art at the Scudieri Quirinale, and the other was of his police trail at the Italian State Archives. And that's really the catch of this episode and probably the appeal of Caravaggio in general. He's not just a compelling figure because he's so masterful an artist, and he's not just compelling because he has this realist style that is well before his time, and he's not just interesting because he almost seems more like a photographer than a painter who lived centuries ago. He's bad. He's a really he's a bad, bad guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a bad boy. That's a good way to describe him. And the documents relating to his life are police documents and court documents, legal statements, things like that. He did leave quite a paper trail and it does not really paint a pretty picture. Yeah. And so I guess that new paper trail is what we'll focus on the most. But first, we'll go back to the beginning. He was born in 1571 and he was the son of an architect and a majordomo for the Marquis of Caravaggio. 
He was apprenticed later at age 11 to painter Simone Petrozano in Milan. And it was sometime in his teens when he was sent off to Rome, and that's where he settles into this bohemian underworld. He's really poor and working for painters at that time who are less able than him. They're less talented. Yeah, definitely struggling. And these are kind of the lost years as far as his record goes, which I guess with Caravaggio, that's a good thing. Um, but they're not lost years as far as his work goes. He painted about 40 people pieces during this period, including Boy with a Fruit Basket and The Young Bacchus. Those are probably two of his most famous works. And finally, in 1595, works like that must have caught the attention of certain eyes because he sets out on his own and he's brought to the attention of Cardinal Francesco de Monte, who was a big shot in the papal court. So this is his in into the more elite world of Rome. And he's soon invited to live at the Cardinal's palace and uh, he's got room and board and all these commissions and by 1597 he has a commission to decorate the Contrelli Chapel in Rome which really puts him into the big league. He's only 24 years old so he put in his, his difficult years early. Yeah, and it's not a really totally smooth road all the way though. His work for the chapel, which included scenes from the life of St. Matthew, they caused quite a stir at the time. And that's because these scenes he painted, they weren't idealized in any way. Matthew basically looks like a laborer off the street, a common person, not a very pretty saint. Yeah, and from there on out, though, he does stick with these religious subjects, though. That's mostly what he's working on. But, um, I mean, like you mentioned, the, the Matthew thing gives a pretty good foreshadowing of this. His his work isn't pretty. It's violent and it's dark stylistically. He supposedly uh, would use a lantern hung in a dark studio to achieve this really dramatic lighting effect. I mean, if you've, I'm guessing probably most of you, if you're listening to this episode, you've seen Caravaggio paintings. But They often look like a photo where there's a big, strong beam of light shining on the subject from one direction. Uh, And another thing he would do is pick poor models. So maybe St. Matthew was right off the street. Um, He would use laborers and, and just people he ran into, perhaps even prostitutes, which obviously that's gonna sometimes caused some trouble for him. And sometimes his work was consequently rejected by its original commissioners. Yeah, the Caramelites, for example, thought that his death of the Virgin looked a little too common and also a little too dead. Yeah, they they didn't want her to look like a normal woman who had just died. They wanted her to be shooting straight up to heaven. And this kind of rejection, though, didn't really hurt Caravaggio's reputation. You would think that that having your commissions rejected would be a bad thing. But private buyers were very eager to snatch up the rejected pieces, and his success really continued to grow. He was moving and mingling in the highest circles of Roman society, hanging out with cardinals, hanging out with princes. So it seemed like he had risen above that rough-and-tumble bohemian life that he started out in. Yeah, but he never really totally left that hard knock life behind either. It's said that he was given to wrath and riot, and probably the best way to understand him might be to first look up some images of his art and then take a look at his police record, which we're going to get into a little bit right now. It is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, actually. May 4th, 1598, for example, he's arrested for carrying a sword without a permit between 2 and 3 a.m. November 19th, 1600, he sued over beating a man with a stick and cutting the guy's cape with his sword at a 3 a.m. brawl. 
Then, October 2nd, 1601, he's accused of attacking a man with a sword and insulting him. Yeah, adding insult to injury. April 24th, 1604, he was accused of attacking a waiter over an artichoke-related dispute, which, because I kind of love that one so much, we're going to talk about it a little more in a second. October 19th, 1604, arrested for pelting policemen with stones. That's never good. May 28th, 1605, he's arrested for carrying a sword and a dagger, too, this time, without a permit. July 29th, 1605, he's accused by a Vatican notary of striking him with a weapon from behind. Yeah, so this gives you a pretty good idea of the kind of shenanigans that Caravaggio was up to. And um, the documents on view of the archives actually give us a closer look at some of these incidents. I mentioned the artichoke one. We have the waiter's statement, which... It'll let you know that a lot is based on tone, and it's kind of hard to tell here what exactly happened. But here it goes. About 17 o'clock, lunchtime, the accused, together with two other people, was eating in the Moore's restaurant, where I work as a waiter. I brought them eight cooked artichokes, four cooked in butter and four fried in oil. The accused asked me which were cooked in butter and which fried in oil, and I told him to smell them which would easily enable him to tell the difference. That's where tone is important. He got angry and without saying anything more, grabbed an earthenware dish and hit me on the cheek at the level of my mustache, injuring me slightly. And then he got up and grabbed his friend's sword, which was lying on the table, intending perhaps to strike me with it. But I got up and came here to the police station to make a formal complaint. So, you know, a guy who's who's easy to anger, I guess. Yeah, he seemed to get riled up pretty easily. He was even accused of throwing stones at his landlady's window after she sued him for cutting holes in his ceiling to make his paintings fit. <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. So, you know, this is this is obnoxious behavior, violent, um, potentially lethal behavior, and carrying illegal swords around is not a good way to stay out of trouble. But he reached a new level May 28, 1606, when he killed a man. You can't really take that back. And um, the circumstances behind this murder are kind of interesting. Uh, the deceased was Renuccio Tomasini, and he was murdered on a tennis court in Rome. And so you've probably heard that because the location was a tennis court, the dispute was somehow related to a game of tennis, or some historians have suggested that it was related to a dispute over a woman. But either way, something that happened in the heat of the moment, um, you just let your passions get to you and get into a fight, and then uh, Renuccio is suddenly dead. But court documents from the time show that it really looked a lot more like an organized war, not just this argument that started suddenly. Right. For one thing, it's not exactly a tennis court where this happens. It's a palacorda court in the Campo Marzio area, which was Caravaggio's neighborhood. Palacorda is kind of like tennis, except there's somehow a string involved. We're not really sure how it works. I'd love but- like an explanation of palacorda for any still practicing sport enthusiasts. Yes. Email us. The other thing was there were eight men who participated in this fight, and they were chosen ahead of time. They weren't just random onlookers. So as you said, it wasn't just in the heat of the moment. It wasn't people who got mad about something that happened to a game and decided to become part of this. It was planned. 
Yeah, and Caravaggio himself was there with three other guys. One was a captain in the papal army, again, showing he does have friends in high places. And one of his friends was also badly injured and arrested after the fact. And it's during this guy's trial where it comes out that the fight was probably started over a gambling debt. So something that they could mull over for a little while and get their friends together. But Caravaggio is injured in this. But he escapes. He's not injured bad enough that he's arrested. He gets out of Rome. He's terribly concerned about what will happen to him, and rightly so, because he's condemned to death in absentia by Pope Paul V. So the first place he goes is to the estate of the Marquis of Caravaggio's relative. So um, I, a friend of his dad's friend, essentially. Uh, from there, he goes to Naples in early 1607, and he starts painting again. And just remember, throughout his entire flight, he's still painting, which I think is so interesting. I mean, obviously, it's partly to make a living, but that you would still have it in you when you're running for your life. Right. And he has to keep moving. He moves on from Naples to Malta, where he not only keeps painting, but he's received into the Order of Malta, which is kind of confusing because it's something that requires papal permission. Yeah. And the Pope has just condemned him to death. I think that's interesting. And of course, all the while, his friends back in Rome were working to get a papal dispensation. Uh, That's the only way he could be pardoned. But I would kind of want... There's files to be handled in reverse order, I think, and, and get my life spared before <laughs> I am received into the Order of Malta. But either way, he's expelled from the Order of Malta not that long after, and he's jailed. He escapes from jail and goes to Syracuse in Sicily in October 1608. And from there, he goes on to Messina and then to Palermo, all the while still working. And it's kind of interesting. Art historians have commented on this work because obviously you're going to look at at anything done under such adverse circumstances. But apparently he really simplifies things and scales it down, but it's still just as skilled and well-executed as ever. The only way for him to really get a rest is to get the Pope's pardon at this point. But Caravaggio has friends in high places, like we mentioned, so they've been working on this. Seems like a pardon might actually be on the horizon, finally. Caravaggio ends up moving to Naples again, but when he's there, he's attacked at the door of an inn and horribly disfigured on his face. People even get reports that he's dead. By July 1610, though, he's finally well enough to sail again, so he sails for Rome, but he's arrested along the way, and the boat with all his stuff leaves him behind while he's in jail. So he's trying to chase down this boat. He gets as far as Porto Ercole, where he dies at 38, so he never reaches the boat never gets his pardon while he's alive. He is actually pardoned three days later after his death. Three days later. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's sad to say the least. And it's interesting though, but the circumstances around his death are appropriately controversial too. He's often believed to have died alone on the beach, which is terribly depressing and probably Seems plausible, right? But his first biographer, Giovanni Bioni, sort of made things even worse. He painted a picture uh, saying, quote, Finally, having arrived in a place on the beach, he was put in bed with a high fever and having no human help. Within a few days, he died as miserably as he had lived. I think that makes it worse. It makes it seem like not only 
does he die alone on the beach? Somebody puts him in bed and then leaves him. And then abandons him. (laughs) Then he dies alone. Definitely taking it up a notch. But his death was really not quite that dramatic. Records from the archives exhibit show that Caravaggio was found delirious on the beach, but then he was taken to the hospital and he died there two days later, presumably not entirely abandoned by everyone at the hospital. Uh, It's still unclear, though, what killed him. Right. Maybe it was malaria. It could have been that. Maybe the Knights of Malta or maybe even the Pope. I mean, during his successful, though very stressful career on the run, he was kind of afraid that papal hitmen were after him. Yeah, so it was a concern of Caravaggio's, at least. But we also have to address those bones that were supposedly Caravaggio's and identified as his last summer. Um, first of all, though, why would this even be an issue? You know, presumably an artist as famous as Caravaggio would have a monument and uh, a marker set up immediately after his death. But even though it's pretty hard to believe, after Caravaggio's death, he faded into obscurity Almost immediately. I mean, he had an influence on later artists, but people pretty much forgot who he was until he had this big resurgence at the beginning of the 20th century. So that's why we knew he definitely died in Porto Ecole, but we didn't know exactly where he was. In 2010, Silvio Vincetti, who is the president of a private organization that seems to go around and ID the remains of illustrious deceased Italians, such as Dante, announced that his team had identified bones of Caravaggio from the Porto Ecole crypt. Yeah, and you may be asking, how did they do this? So here's a little bit about their method. They examined skeletons at the crypt, eliminating ones that didn't fit Caravaggio's specs, basically. They carbon dated things down to one skeleton, and then they tested that sample against the DNA from families who were named Marisi or Mauricio from Caravaggio. So they did this basically because Caravaggio didn't have any kids of his own, and the committee couldn't find his actual descendants, his siblings' descendants, I should say. So they kind of had to take their best guess. Yeah, and that's one thing that makes people a little uncomfortable with this finding. Uh, but the group also concluded that the presumed Caravaggio skeleton had suffered from lead poisoning, which would would also add up for an artist at the time, had suffered from syphilis, and had died from sunstroke. But art historians have been really, really skeptical of this claim, to say the least. The New York Times article that we mentioned earlier had quotes from quite a few art historians uh, with varying tone of dismissal, but I included one from Tommaso Montanari of the University of Naples who said, quote, in the 400th anniversary of Caravaggio's death, this committee has concocted a compelling discovery thinking it will attract tourists. It's all very depressing. Yikes. Yeah. Sir. Not very confidence inspiring. No, not at all. So I guess I'm hoping that we'll find out more in the 401st anniversary of Caravaggio's death because I don't like my, my exhumations to be depressing and up in the air. Yeah, you don't want your exhumations to be disproved almost immediately. No, no. I'd like there to be solid evidence behind them. Uh, So that about wraps it up for this 
illustrious yet troubled painter. I'm sure lots of you, especially those of you who frequently request that we cover more art history, have favorite Caravaggio stories, or maybe some of you have even gotten to go to these exhibits in Rome, and you can tell us a little more about them. Apparently, the art exhibit was lit very dramatically. It was a dark room with spotlights on each canvas. So if if you saw that, let us know how it was. Sounds interesting. Um, And I guess that brings us to listener mail. This one's from Danielle in Canada, and I'm very sorry if I just mispronounced your name. She says... I just finished listening to the podcast on 17th century Dutch tulip mania, and it made me think of another story about tulips. I live not far from Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada and located in Ontario, and one of the things that Ottawa is known for is their annual tulip festival. The history of the tulip festival is that it started as a way of recognizing Canada's role in liberating the Dutch during World War II, and specifically for providing safe harbor for the Dutch royal family. The Tulip Festival's website does a much better job of explaining this, and she gives it to us here. It's www.tulipfestival.ca. But essentially, during World War II, the Canadian government temporarily declared a room at the Ottawa Civic Hospital to be Dutch territory so that Princess Marguerite could be born a Dutch citizen on Dutch soil. As a thank you, the people of the Netherlands and the new princess's mother, Princess Juliana, sent many gifts to Canada, including 100,000 tulip bulbs. The festival is now almost 60 years old, and it's the largest tulip festival in the world. And the tulip is Ottawa's official flower, which, as the event site notes, makes Ottawa the tulip capital of North America. So, yeah, I thought that was a really sweet story. And actually, a few people sent it to us. We got um, a similar story from Christina in Toronto and John, who also told us about a tulip mania board game, which sounds awesome. Um, Definitely one to check out. Yeah, I mean, I love games about commodities. What if the commodities (laughs) involved were tulips? That would be so much fun. Um, I just have one more of these tulip or Holland-related emails to share. And this one is from Joost. Initially, he emailed to let us know that the Kingdom of the Netherlands does not consist of the Antilles anymore since they were dissolved on October 10th, 2010. And I was really shocked to see that information because after doing the most of the big research on the tulip episode, I looked up to make sure I knew exactly what the Netherlands were. And I looked on the official website of the Netherlands Board of Tourism and Conventions, which apparently is not updated yet. I sent them an email after I got this this correction alerting them. Sort Um, of awkward. Yeah, (laughs) it's a little awkward to do now that you mention it. But he also shared a really interesting story, and I kind of like it because it has a pronunciation in it that... No one, no one can fault us for, for mispronouncing. But here it goes. During the German occupation, the Allied bombers and accompanying fighters had to fly over Holland to reach Germany. As a result, a lot of planes were shot down over Dutch ground. If the pilots were lucky enough to survive and not get caught by Germans going to the crash site, they fell into the hands of the resistance and were smuggled back to England. Obviously, they were disguised as normal Dutch citizens during their transport. When German patrols encountered people they felt were not true Dutch, they would order them to say, Tschinkafigen. That's my best approximation. Um, this is the name of a Dutch coastal town. For non-native Dutch speakers, it is almost impossible to make the ch 
sound the way a Dutch would, since it is a sound distinguished to our language. If the persons would fail the test, Germans knew they were dealing with British or Americans and the proper action was taken. So um, I listened to a few different pronunciations of this word, and the best I can tell, it's sort of a combination of a T, an S sound from a snake, and an SH, like schaffeningen. But I don't think I would pass this test, unfortunately. So it's good I was not a pilot flying over Holland in World War II. In many ways. Yeah, in many ways. (laughs) But, um, yeah, thank you. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting story. And uh, thanks for sharing it. Yeah, we love these. Send more. We have an email address that you can send them to. It's historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook and at Twitter at Mist in History. And we also have a blog, and Dublina and I have been working on updating it regularly. So in case you went and didn't see anything posted in the past few months, um, there's lots of stuff now. It yeah, is brimming with it is content. Rolling. So you can come check us out, and you'll find the blogs by visiting the HowStuffWorks homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 